0: smile at the singing of that hymn. I may have shared this story before, I don't know, but I learned that hymn. We sang it at church, I remember it then, but it resounded in our home frequently. My dad had an album, and it would have been probably from a prior generation, so I think there'll be about two of you that'll catch what I'm about to say, but it was an album, Tennessee, Ernie Ford and the San Quentin Prison Choir. Uh, Those guys on the album cover, they didn't look as scary as the streets do today. So um, I don't know how long it's been since a prison had a choir uh, and they could sing. So anyway, but um, while we're on the outside and we can sing, lead on, O God of might. Turn a few... Romans chapter 13 this morning. Romans 13. I want to begin in verse 8. We'll read through the remainder of the chapter and I hope for us to finish this chapter today. So, reading from Romans 13 now in verse 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this, saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh, to fulfil the lusts thereof. Amen. We'll end our reading, and we trust again the Lord to prosper the public reading of it. So bow our heads and hearts together. Our heavenly Father, we come with grateful hearts for the mercies that you have granted to your people. We have in this opening portion of the practical part of Romans been told very plainly it is almost as on a billboard to display we are besought of the apostle by the mercies of God that we might present ourselves present our bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God which is our reasonable service and not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so grant grace today as we continue on through these admonitions that You have inspired and preserved for us. Help us then today to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in His worthy name. Amen. Well, we're working our way through the practical section of Romans, chapters 12 to 16 at the end. And we do have, obviously, several more paragraphs, if you will, of material to go through. Chapter 13 is a very brief chapter. I haven't double-checked, but I think the briefest chapter in the whole epistle. But chapters 14, 15, and 16 are still to come and they're not overly brief chapters, but if I could suggest to you today, while we have all of that material in chapters 14 through 16 still to come, that by the time we reach the end of chapter 13 where we are considering today, we're nearing the close of the topics, the practical things that the Apostle will cover. If you would Think with me for a minute and maybe work backwards from chapter 16 to where we are just to kind of flesh that out a little bit. Paul continues, or concludes rather, the epistle with chapter 16, a quite healthy list of names, of greetings, of acquaintances. It is far longer than we have similar things in the other epistles. In chapter 15, He gives a little bit of a record of himself, what he's been doing, uh, what he is currently doing, and what he plans to do. There's actually, for those of you trivia buffs and Bible scholars out there, there's a, a place in Romans 15 that Paul mentions he's going to visit. It just comes to me because I was driving to Florida one time with one of my seminary companions. And we were passing the time by playing 20 questions. I'm trying to think of the format, but you know, you've got 20 questions, you think of something and the other guy gets 20 questions, you just answer yes or no or whatever, and if he can figure out what your thing is within 20 questions, he wins. Well, this fellow was a pretty sharp fellow. And we were doing it with Bible stuff, and we were both doing okay. I think we had all gotten all of the things so far. And I said, oh, I think I got him. And I pulled something out of Romans 15. Spain. Paul says when he takes his journey to Spain, he's going to drop by and see the Romans. Spain's not a country that you just usually associate with the Bible. I thought I had him. He got it on question 19. What are you going to do? Anyway, but Paul gives a little record there of his plans and where he's been, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. In chapter 14, he deals with a particular question, uh, a problem that arises among believers, uh, the the weak and the strong, uh, matters of indifference. Um, How do we handle those things? How do we handle one another in the middle of those things? And so I say from the end up to where we are now, that's where he's going to go. So the greetings, and then some of those plans and personal notes that are there, and then this particular matter that has some difficulty. But in chapters 12 and 13, the opening part, and really, in a sense, the practical section, he's dealt instead of with a particular circumstance that has some difficulties, he's been dealing with general requirements which are clear. And as we've looked at these sections so far, In chapter 12, 1 and 2, of course, we have that introductory statement. As a result of our salvation, as participants and recipients of the gospel of redemption, we have passed, transitioned out of our previous condition of condemnation and misery into a state of justification and redemption. Following that introduction, what we've seen then so far in the rest of chapter 12 and in chapter 13 is how to treat my brother, how to treat my neighbor, and last week, how to treat my government. Well, now Paul comes to close out this section I'm suggesting with what we might say are some universal requirements of all believers towards all people. I'm not suggesting that this is the conclusion of the book, as it were, but yet in a certain way, this is the practical stuff. The other details he'll he'll leave till later. But he's closing out, I say, a section of very general, universal teaching now. He closes this out, I say, with what we might say are universal requirements of all believers towards all people. And what I want to do then today is look at the remainder of chapter 13, and I want to do so under two headings. It'll be a minute till we get underneath the first of these, but I want to... Give them to you here now. Firstly today, we are permanently indebted. Permanently indebted. And secondly, temporarily embattled. Temporarily embattled. But firstly, I say permanently indebted. If you look back at verse 8 where we begin today, Paul says, O no man Anything. This is a phrase that some have interpreted to mean something that I don't believe it does. I think when we look at the remainder of Scripture, it clearly doesn't mean what some have suggested that it means. Some have used this as a phrase, as an admonition of Scripture, to suggest that it is always wrong for God's people to be in debt, to borrow money. Now, again, it's not my purpose to, in in any extensive way, flesh that out today. But I don't believe, number one, that that's true. And I don't believe that that is what Paul is actually saying here in Romans 13. He has just left that section about what we owe to our government, if you will, by paying tribute. And then he transitions and says, "'Owe no man anything.'" But that's really just an introductory phrase to what follows. Now, I think it is clear, and we can't leave out from Paul's meaning, that we're not to be behind in our indebtedness toward anyone. We're not to be delinquent in those things that we owe. Somebody checks up on us, we ought to have a reasonably good credit rating. A trustworthy person. So, Just some thoughts as we approach the context, but with that question that is so often drawn from this verse in particular. I say Scripture does not forbid borrowing. You go through the Scriptures, you find that the admonitions there really flow in a a different direction than often it is thought. But when we look at Proverbs, for example, there's a, a clear statement there in chapter 37. It says, the wicked borroweth and payeth not again. The wickedness isn't in the borrowing. The wickedness is in the refusing to pay back. You can go to the book of Deuteronomy, several portions there in the books of Moses and beyond. There's actually scripture that commanded God's people of Israel to lend to one another. You can't have God condoning, even commanding, lending without permitting borrowing. And so we see that lending and borrowing was, even in ancient Israel, a part of the experience of the Lord's people. Really, when you look at the Scriptures, you find as it approaches the subject of borrowers and lenders, there's far more admonition, there's far more warning that's actually given that's focused on the lenders rather than the borrowers. I don't know if we paused to take time when we were going through the prophecy of Amos, but there's a famous section in Amos about people not giving back their brother their cloak. Oftentimes, articles of clothing, they were very expensive and thus valuable in the ancient world, much more so than in our day. A cloak might be given as a pledge, as an earnest or collateral. That's the word my brain wasn't latching on to. But the lender was to give the cloak back to the borrower at night so that he could be warm, not have to sleep cold during the period of his indebtedness and it was a tremendous warning that Amos gave to such we see so many social sins described there in the prophecy of Amos the warning there was given to the lender the lender to exact usury to make merchandise of the poor to take advantage of them in their situation here is where the warnings and the real fear of God comes in. God had interestingly put into the experience of the nation a sabbatical year. That was a provision in the calendar of the people that would forbid the accumulation of debt. Remember the sabbatical year, debts were forgiven. Lenders were even warned about hedging their lending practices. You know, the sabbatical year is coming up and... Uh, If I don't get all this back by then, it's going to be all gone. Be careful with your heart, the Lord says, even in dealing with that. The prospect of such loss. So the obvious truths as we come to the Scripture, and again, I want to leave this here momentarily. Obviously, Scripture doesn't condone borrowing as to satisfy lusts. Borrowing things for things that we have no need of. Again, there's a lot of subjective heart searching when it comes down to need and those questions, to be sure. Scripture isn't saying, go rack up as much debt on your credit card as you can. Well, last I looked, if you read the small print, there's a true definition of usury in the small print on those uh, documents, to be sure. But again, Scripture's not saying it's always wrong to borrow. But unbridled borrowing, Borrowing to consume it upon our lusts? Obviously not what God's people should be doing. And like I said, the Scripture's warnings really fall more upon those that would lend and have a cold and selfish heart in the process of their lending. But I say that topic, though it comes up so often and come, people come to Romans 13 in addressing that topic, That's not really where Paul's going here. He says, in an interesting commentator say, transition from that section dealing with the civil magistrate and our submission and obedience to those in authority over us in that realm. He says, oh no man, anything except to love one another. Here's a debt that not only you should take up, here's a debt you have forever. Hence, I say the title of our first point today. Permanently indebted. Permanently indebted. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Paul is saying here is a debt that you have. Here's a debt you can never repay. Here's an indebtedness that you take to yourself, you willingly take to yourself, and you recognize that forever it will belong to you. You owe every man this debt. You owe every man love. How did Paul open this epistle? after his introductory greetings, after that thesis statement, what does he say? I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the Jews, to the wise, to the unwise. There's the mindset of the child of God. There's a debt I owe to all men. I owe them as fellow creatures created in the image of God. I owe them the mindset, the attitude, the actions toward them that God's moral law has ordained forever. And Paul enters into a section here that is interestingly, or I say, should say importantly, uh, a key point in our understanding some of the particulars of our systematic theology we come to define what we speak of as the moral law. That which is distinct from the ceremonial law that governed Israel's worship and the types and pictures and the sacrificial system, the tabernacle and the temple and so forth. That which is distinct from the civil laws that governed that nation as our confession speaks of them as a body politic. It is striking to me in the modern context those that refuse to see that clear division with regard to the subject of law in Scripture. I think one of my students missed a true-false question on the last exam. You don't get mad at the student when they miss one of these questions. You think, how could they sit in my class and not get this? I did something wrong. I only said it 30 times instead of 40 times. Um... But Calvin comments about this threefold division as a common division. So here's a reformer talking about all the centuries that have preceded the Reformation. It's a common understanding, a common division of the law. The moral law stands as unique, as distinct. I was amazed as you look at Deuteronomy in that second statement of the 10 words, it said that God spoke all these words, and He added no more. Well, if you know anything, that's like Deuteronomy uh, five, don't, six, don't. Anyway, it's, it's right in there somewhere. Chapter content is failing me, as I berate my students publicly here. Um, but the rest of Deuteronomy, there's, there's a lot of law there. I mean, that's the name of the book. He added no more. Those ten words that were inscribed on tables of stone with the finger of God and placed inside the ark and covered with that mercy seat. There's a distinct place that that moral law has. Because that is immutable. It's not a principle derived from a moral standard that can alter depending on circumstances. There are some laws that are mutable. We've talked about this before, but a speed limit. We have laws about speed limit. According to the moral law, which doesn't change, that law sometimes has to change. Here's an example. In normal circumstances, when you're driving on certain roads that are designed for certain speeds and certain numbers of cars, here is a speed limit. Here is a safe margin wherein you're to operate your vehicle and be loving your brother. Be treating your brother the way he ought to be treated. Not let it be dangerous keep to the speed limit. What of the circumstance when the alarms go off at the fire station or at the hospital and someone has a medical emergency and the ambulance arrives and they need to get to the hospital? Well, that vehicle is equipped with lights and sirens and we hear them going by, usually right in the middle of the sermon at times, um, and they break the speed limit. And they're upholding the moral law by doing so. This person's life is in the balance. We need to get them to help as soon as we can. These lights and sirens tell people it isn't a normal situation. The speed limit right now for this vehicle doesn't apply. The rest of you get out of the way and on he goes as fast as he can. That's a civil law in a very distant modern context. For Israel, there were such civil circumstances. And those can be set aside and are for the times of the Gentiles. And the ceremonies, obviously, put away after the fulfillment of all the types and shadows has come. But the moral law, that's not temporary, that's not Jewish, it's a definition of right and wrong. And Paul enters in here to a summary. He really uses a literary device here of giving a part which clearly is in reference to the whole. And he rattles off most of the second table as we speak of it of the Ten Commandments. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, And if there be any other commandment. He says, I'm I'm just summarizing here the law that you know. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying. Namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Here's a debt Paul says that we owe. Those ten words, that moral law. And think of it too, beyond. Our confession, I think, is exactly right when it speaks of the ten words as the place where the moral law is summarily comprehended. But again, remember, the moral law is at the same time larger and smaller than the Ten Commandments. It's larger in that it encompasses all of life. Those ten words are just like the table of contents. that The rest of life is contained underneath them. But the moral law is smaller than that. It can be comprehended in one word. Love. I have to confess I was a little bit surprised that some of the commentators in looking at this section. I was relieved at a couple others, but some that were drawing a a contrast between law and love. Well, if love is the fulfillment of the law, they're not different than each other. Instead of a contrast, we've got an equal sign between them. But think of it though in this way. The Ten Words, the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law given to and as it applies to fallen man. Had Adam not sinned, had Adam loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength and loved his neighbor as himself, And the fall never occurred. The temptation to adultery or murder or theft or bearing false witness or coveting, those circumstances would never have come. But given that man has fallen, given now that our temptations are in this direction, dead in our trespasses and sins, We do have the inclination to do all this stuff to our neighbor. God gave those ten words to show us what love looks like in a fallen world. We don't go in the path of the fallen nature. We don't walk in the way that the ungodly walk. And so Paul here, I say, in a sense, wrapping up this practical section save for some particular circumstances that have some difficulty in even understanding and applying them that will follow. He says, oh, no man anything but this. I've talked to you about how to treat your brother, how to treat your neighbor, how to live underneath your government. But here, here's the root of everything. Here's a debt you have. Love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. We're permanently indebted. This is what love is going to look like in this fallen world. So in verses 8-10 to I say, Paul, explains in this way that we're permanently indebted. We owe love to everyone. Before we come to our second point, just ponder that again very practically. It's a sad commentary, I guess, that sometimes Christians get in the mindset I don't think it's a Gospel mindset. I don't think it's a reflection of Gospel thinking. They get in the mindset, I'm a Christian now, I do the right thing, and all these unsaved people are bad, and they do the wrong thing, and so I don't have to love them. It's a self-righteous heart that highlights the distinction, if you will, between Himself and the world the self-righteous heart that somehow thinks there's something good in me that made God choose me and not them. And then we can walk around almost in a state of anger against the ungodly. There's difficult stuff. Sin, can we say, is frustrating to behold. But to look at the sinner and say, I don't owe him love. Well, you're sinning against Him. God says, O no man anything except this to love Him. We are permanently indebted. And what a remarkable ground of witness when we engage with a sinner that knows if they know us There's something different about us than the rest of the world. There's something different about us than is true of Him. And we love Him anyway. What a door of access often that will open for us. Even as Paul, as he's expounding the Gospel, says, I'm a debtor to everybody. Permanently, Indebted. but now we come to verses eleven to fourteen, and here I'd suggest to you secondly today that we are temporarily embattled. Paul says, "In that knowing the time," an interesting subject that he approaches here. No time. Christ spoke in rebuke of the generation surrounding his earthly ministry. Just pause. There were times he used the phrase generation, uh, not referring simply to a chronological period of one lifetime, but a category of people, but that's its own topic. But he told the religious leaders of the day, you can discern the the signs in the sky. You can look at the clouds and the wind direction and think, it's going to rain tomorrow. And you can't discern these times, the fullness of time. Your Messiah is here in your midst. That's how he could say it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah, in those cities where his greatest miracles were done. But here, Paul speaks to us about knowing the time. Not so much a time of the Messiah is present. But yet, there is something about the fact that the Messiah has come. There's a season in the Scriptures that's spoken of as the last days. It's that period of time that is in between the two advents of Jesus. His first coming and His second coming. So those Christians that lived 2,000 years ago were living in the last days. We are living in the last days. Now I think Scripture indicates that the last days as a category of time in the history of the world that we're living in. There's some last days to those last days that we yet await. But Paul speaks about this, says, Knowing the time. Now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Scripture speaks of this. And this is where I have a little bit of a memory question. I don't remember if I dealt with it here, or if I was dealing with it in the seminary classroom, but remember at least, or here for the first time, if you didn't hear it before. The tenses of salvation. We can speak of salvation as we have been saved. We see Scripture speak of that. And that includes aspects of redemption like regeneration, justification, adoption. That's stuff that is given to us, that is worked within us, that is accomplished. We possess it now. We possess it from the moment we were saved. Salvation past tense. Salvation present tense. Scripture speaks about we are being saved. We would speak of that under the banner of sanctification. Growth in grace. Maturing in the faith. Becoming more and more Christ-like as we await the day. So we are being saved. And then the Scriptures speak about salvation in the future tense. We will be saved. And it is in this tense that Paul is speaking now. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. We're pressing on to that day of final, ultimate salvation, of glorification, of the day of the Lord's return. So Paul here speaks of awaiting that day. Paul here, one phrased it this way and I thought it quite fitting. Paul here, in a sense, lays an eschatological foundation for Christian conduct. We're anticipating the day. The day of Christ's return. The day of our glorification. As we await that day, though, well, we smile sometimes and speak of it with the gospel songs. There's the sweet by and by. And there's the nasty now and now. I don't think the nasty now and now made it into the Gospel thought song. I think it was an extrapolation from uh, believers singing the Gospel song. But that nasty now and now is a period of conflict. It produces in this portion the, the whole idea of putting on, verse 12, the armor of light. He introduces this conflict again in the category of, of warfare, of spiritual battle. That's why we would ask our eternal king to lead us on. It's not with swords loud clashing or roll or drums. I haven't listened to Tennessee Ernie Ford enough lately to get that one all out correctly. It's not with earthly weapons. The weapons of our warfare, the Apostle says, aren't carnal. They're mighty. I always love that contrast that Paul doesn't complete. You think in Corinthians he would say the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're spiritual. But he doesn't complete it that way. He says they're not fleshly. They're powerful. There's the implication there. All this fleshly stuff that can look really good and look really strong and look really effective isn't powerful. It isn't mighty. It's not really accomplishing what's supposed to be accomplished. The weapons of our warfare are mighty. They're spiritual. And it's this spiritual conflict that the Apostle points out He gives the familiar imagery of the night and the day, of the darkness and the light. And he says here, the night, speaking there of, well, this age. The age of sin prevailing. The age of accursed earth. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. We anticipate the day of Christ's return. We anticipate the day of the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness where these battles won't happen anymore. Where the law will be written on our hearts. Not merely, if you will, in tables of stone helping us to see constantly what love looks like in a fallen world, but written in our hearts. But until that day, there's battle. We're to cast off. The imagery here is often used of clothing. Cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. And then He gives a succession of three admonitions here. The first two, He gives with reference to Himself. The plural. And then He finishes out just with an imperative to us. But obviously... Of all believers individually. He says, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. The first pair, rioting and drunkenness, intoxication, carousing. As so we read elsewhere, once a person is saved, his former companions will think it strange. That He doesn't run with them to the same excess of riot. He's different than He was. He's not with us in all these shenanigans anymore. Not in chambering. Just an English word put in here for a term dealing with immorality. Sexual immorality. Wantonness. Amplifying that category of sin. So we're not to walk in intoxication. Not to walk in immorality. But then lest we fall into the trap of thinking that godly living is just characterized by not doing this external stuff anymore. Not in strife and envy. Touching those matters of the heart. Matters of our interaction with others that fall short of physical activities, if you will. you think about strife and envying, these can often be brought in or kept in the life once the outside stuff's cleaned up. That's where often the believer comes to learn, as difficult as it may be for some to break with the habits and the sins of their former life, A couple of the commentators mentioned Augustine, a famous church father who had a very immoral life prior to his coming to Christ. And it was a refusal really to break with that immorality the sins of the flesh that hindered him so long in coming in to the faith. But again, somebody gets saved it might not be an easy thing, as it were, no effort involved, but to cut off the intoxicants, stop doing it. Okay. The immorality, stop doing it. Okay. Strife and envy. You can't fix that by not going to the bar you always went to. You can't fix that by not being with the people that you used to always be with. Here you've got to deal with your heart, your attitude, your mind. That becomes the real battle. The heart and the desires that lead to the outward actions. There's the lifelong battle till we come to the day of glory. We will make shame, look for the day in which we'll love Him with an unsinning heart. But here the admonitions, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy. But then he says, and he, he changes the metaphor. He doesn't say here, as he says in verse 12, put on the armor of light. He says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. You want a great summary? I'm suggesting innocence. The practical section's kind of finishing up here in the end of chapter 13. A specific thing dealt with afterward and then the record and the greetings. You want a summary? A bookend as it were? The opening? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to now. The closing? Be conformed to that day what does that look like? Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothed in Christ-likeness. There is the goal. There's the pattern. There's the path of Christian experience, of practical, godly living. Put on Christ who is our risen, glorified Christ. He is glorified humanity. Infinitely more, yes, as eternal God. But He's ascended in our nature to the right hand of the Father. He's coming again in our nature. And we don't understand all the particulars. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. If we're going to be transformed to His image ultimately, completely, in that full, it's often described, beatific vision of Christ, then how are we going to be more like Him now approaching that day? See more of Him. Search the Scriptures to see yet more of Him. And then he concludes with a phrase that we should all commit to memory. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. There's a text that could be a a giant text for a whole sermon. To cut off activities. To draw the lines as it were. We can be there. But to not even make provision. Some suggest that the idea of thought here. Don't be thinking about fulfilling the, the flesh's desires. Yeah? Yeah? Active purposing to plan to sin, I guess, could be and would obviously be taken up in the teaching here. But to not make provision. To live and order your life in such a way that those fiercest points of temptation, those boundary lines between righteousness and sin, that we don't live there. That we don't make provision for the flesh. Sometimes you hear of a Christian falling into great sin. Sometimes it's an awful shock and surprise, and other times it's they were dancing on the edges all the time anyway. And you think of the entertainment industry, the music industry. What unites the world in its united mindset? Stuff that people identify with that are dead in trespasses and sins. So there's going to be a whole lot of pop culture that doesn't belong to us. And to engage in it, to entertain it, is very often making provision. With flesh. Living right there on the border. Thinking, I'll never have a foot or an eye cross the border. No. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Focus with reverential awe and thanksgiving as a recipient of grace. Hear the apostolic admonition by the mercies of God. He has not dealt with you according to your sins. Put on Christ. Don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We have a permanent indebtedness and a temporary battle until that day of glory. May God give us grace to apply these things. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we come with thankful hearts that You've given Your Word. You've given what we need. By Your Spirit, we ask to take up these words we've read today. Help us so to live. Lord, it is so ready to see the night, the, the darkness. Scripture says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But we're of the day. Let us who are of the day be sober, sober, putting on that breastplate of righteousness, putting on the armor of God, putting on Christ. And so give us wisdom. Give us determined hearts that we might be more and more like Him. We ask and pray it in His precious and worthy name. Amen.